did not plug. Ah, I didn't plug something in. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you to the patient sound people. All right. Anyway, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Young Adult here at Camp Meeting. For those of you who are just joining us, because I see a lot of new faces, just need to give a little bit of a disclaimer again here. We have been going through the book of Job this week, which is by no means an easy task. And you are hitting it now already 38 chapters into this book. So if you're just now joining us, there might be things that don't, you don't quite get what the characters are referencing or what in the world's going on or what led up to the points that we are making. And I just want to let you know, hold on, you do not have to fear. We have been recording these messages. And so when you find a time where your belly is full and you're fully slept and you're feeling really good about life and can handle my voice again, you can go to the camp meeting website and you can look up the last messages and you can catch up. Uh, in your spare time on your podcasting app, anything like that, you can listen through and catch up with us. For those of you who have been hanging on through the week, the good news for you is that finally, 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 our last three messages are all about answers. Nobody's excited about that. Okay. Everybody's like, I just love the deep, dark depression and questions and nothing. Go-. Okay. Anyway. But yes, we get to finally move into answers. And then one last thing to that before we dive even into the answers that are there in the book of Job is I'm just curious, maybe you won't raise your hands, but is there anyone willing to say how many of you tried, um, how many of you took some time and had a heart-to-heart with God? All right, anyone? Okay, a few brave souls. I'm not going to ask you, just, just nod so that no one can know if you're nodding to me or not. Did you find it actually strangely cathartic in a way you didn't think? Anyone? Okay, a few people. All right, awesome. If you have not tried that, and if you don't know what I'm referring to, listen to last night's message. All right, so we get to get into quest- uh, to answers tonight, so I don't want to waste any more time with that. So I'm going to take a moment and just have another word of prayer. And I want to invite you where you are, if you would just bow your heads and ask the Lord to speak to your heart individually, that your heart would be open and your mind would be receptive to the message God has tailored prepared before you. Uh, this evening and pray for those around you that they would also receive a blessing and then after a few moments of silence I'll come together and pray out loud in the close of that prayer and we'll get started with our message this morning the first of the key answers in the book Leviathan so let's just take a moment and go before the Lord in prayer Father, we've been patient. We've been giving you some time to provide answers. And we are past ready for them. So now we just ask that as you are present, we would be present. May we see your answers clearly. May we see your heart in those answers. And may they be worth the wait. We're claiming the promise that you said that would be. So show us now, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Job, again, the book of Job, chapter 38. And just as a reminder of where we are when we pick up the story in 38, the young adult, Elihu, has just finished speaking. Now, again, just by way of indicating that Elihu was different than the three friends, you will note that as each of the three friends would speak, whenever they took a pause, Job would like have a rebuttal. And they'd have this kind of back and forth going for like 30-some chapters. When Elihu speaks, he doesn't stop. He speaks everything he wants to say. And as soon as he is done speaking, Job makes no attempt to rebut him. Uh, That should be the first key that something that Elihu said is different. Elihu has basically primed the pump for understanding. And as soon as Elihu is finished speaking and Job has nothing left to say, 
Then, the, you know, the, the highlight of the book, guess who f- now shows up after the venting session to finally have a conversation? God. I'm glad he finally decided to show up in the book, right? That's what you might feel. Turn, all right, 38. And we're going to pick up right where God does, which is right actually on the same topics as Elihu. But he gives us some fascinating details Elihu didn't. And I am ready for answers, so let's hit it. Chapter 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. You get this idea that he's quiet and all of a sudden, like, you know, this wind comes in and boom, God is right there. The God that for all the chapters preceding this, Job has been demanding, why won't he show himself? Why won't he answer me? Why won't he explain himself? Well, ta-da, be careful what you wish for. Right, here he is. Verse 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, basically man up, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Okay, now that seems a little aggressive. If you're just reading that first, he's like, all right, hi, Job, here I am, man up, let's talk. Which I don't take that, you know, there's two ways you can read it. You don't get the voice inflection in this, right? And maybe I'm not doing it justice there. I don't think God showed up like, ha, man up, speak up, what's your problem? I don't think it's exactly how he showed up, but he is saying, all right, Job, I'm here. You wanted to talk. Now talk. Let's have a conversation. Here we go. I'll talk. You wanted to talk. Here we go. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, that's an unfortunate question, (laughs) right? And and I need to pause right here because this is something I need to clarify right before we even get into this whole chunk of stuff. Most scholars, when you read Job, they will say that God shows up and begins to ask him a whole bunch of questions that God knows he cannot answer, right? Most scholars say, well, God is showing up to shut Job up. That's basically the nutshell. You read a lot of scholars and they say, well, God showed up to rebuke Job for asking all these questions. That's how most people take this. I'm going to go out on a limb, or really I don't think it's that much of a limb because I'm going to go off the text. I don't think that's why God showed up. And I say this for this reason. If God wanted Job to shut up, why does he bother showing up? You ever thought about that? Like if God's not interested in really talking with Job and having a heart-to-heart or giving answers, then why bother even showing up? There's no need for God to waste his time coming to Job if he doesn't want to talk to him. So that probably, just logically, is not what God is doing here. He's probably not trying to shut Job up. So if he's not trying to shut him up, we need to pay attention to what maybe would he be trying to do. I'm just going to kind of summarize some of the questions that are going to come in the next 38 verses, but I'm going to pause on a few that are are quite interesting. Basically, God starts asking Job questions like this. Um, How was the earth set up and made secure? Who put the foundation of the earth in as all the universe celebrated that the earth appeared? Who made the ocean stay where it was? And then jump down to verse 10, actually, because I don't want to miss this one. This, is, this, this isn't really totally important to the point, but I, you know, I'm preaching, so I get to choose what I talk about. And I really like verse 10 and 11. I don't want to miss this because this is kind of a nerd moment for me. I was like, whoa, I got to share that. Okay, verse 10, and I placed boundaries. This is going to be God talking about the ocean, like, Job, where were you when I put the ocean in place? And then he says this thing about the ocean that I found fascinating. Verse 10, and I placed boundaries on it, And I set up a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far shall you come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves stop. And you go, okay, why why is that interesting to you? 
Okay, because he's making a statement about the ocean. He goes, all right, Job, where were you when this whole thing set up? And then he uses very interesting language. He says, I'm the one with, with bolt and doors have locked the thing away, both in the clouds and on the, you know, on the earth. And I've said, this is where you stay and you will go no further. And it's, it, you almost can miss it in English because it, it's really subtle even in the Hebrew. But this is an allusion. This is an allusion back to Genesis 7 and the flood. And the reason why I wanted to pause and mention this, because the flood is a big topic that obviously comes up when you think about suffering, and does God cause it? And we think, well, duh, he causes it because he drowned everybody, right? Except for one family and a bunch of animals floating in a boat, okay? But even when you hear this allusion back to the flood from God, it makes a very interesting point that Genesis brings out that oftentimes I think we miss. And so I was like, oh, man, bonus point. I'm going to give it to you even though it's from Genesis and not Job. Here's the point. Here's the thing. When you read Genesis, Genesis 1, does anyone remember what state was the earth when God came to it? Void, and what was there? Was there anything there? Okay, well, the Spirit of God's hovering over the waters, it says, because, uh, and, and by the way, that word in the Hebrew is just great. It means like trembling and anticipation. You get the idea that God's so excited to create. He's like, okay, I can't, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. You know, I mean, he probably wasn't as spastic as that, but you get my point. So he's, uh, he's just really excited. But no, remember it says the earth was formless and void, and before it says the Spirit's going, yes, yes, yes. Before he said that, it says something covers the earth. Anyone remember? Waters covered the face of the deep. Right? So it's basically a ball of water. Even science says the majority of our planet is water. Right? The majority of you is water, unless you don't drink enough, and then you pass out. But anyway, right? majority water. So here's the thing. So do you remember what the first thing God does is when, in the creation story when he comes in to create on the earth? What's the first thing he has to do other than light, obviously? He separates what? The waters where? It gives very specific directionals. The water that is, I know I'm picking on you Bible students, the water above from the water beneath. You get the idea that when God's got to make a space for his creatures and for humanity, that God sticks his hands into the water and goes, and separates it like that, and everything gets to live in between. There's the moisture of the air. There's the oceans on the, you know, down there, and the land comes up because he's pushed it down. You get the idea that God stuck his hands in there and went, and he's holding it apart so that things can live in there. Now, when you get to the flood story, it makes a point about Genesis 6 that the earth has gotten so wicked, they've gotten so cruel, they've gotten so what? They hate God so bad that it says the spirit, it uses a very interesting language, that same spirit that was hovering and like, woohoo, it says the spirit will not strive with man anymore. And you get the idea that a battle was ensuing. And then basically, when you strive with someone, you're kind of, fo- you get the idea the spirit was fighting to stay. He was wrestling to stay. And it's almost like he's like, I, you know, I'm not going to force myself on you. You obviously want me gone. So you get the idea that God says, fine, I'll leave. And we don't often think about that this way, but right, you know, because we often think that somehow, you know, here, here's the thing. People have kicked God out. God hasn't kicked people out, right? We, he has to honor choices, and humanity as a whole says, get lost. Well, here's the only thing humanity didn't think about in that demand. The only reason they're living is because God is actively involved in their world, and his hands are holding the waters above from the waters beneath. As he says in Job, they're locked up, he in chain, and they stay there. And I say, you can't go back. You can't go any further. So watch what happens. When the flood comes and people say, get lost, God finally goes, even though he don't want to. Okay, fine. And remember, he lingers even longer than they wanted him to. He stays 120, you right, he's waiting 100-some years while people are building an ark and doing that. And finally, he's like, fine, I'll honor your choice. And he pulls his hands out. Well, here's the thing. This is the illusion that Job is even making. 
if he pulls his hands out and his hands, and I'm using this metaphorically, I don't think God's literally got a hand sitting there like, uh-huh, okay, but if he moves his hands out, what happens to the waters that are above and below? Does anyone remember how it says the flood happened? Two different things happened to flood the earth. Obviously, everyone thinks of the rain, right? The movies always get that. The waters from above fall back down. And then it said the fountains of the deep were opened. It wasn't just rain coming and it filled up. You get the idea the ground opened up and all the water's like, yay, I get to go back. He pulls his hands out and it all goes back to where the earth is formless and without void again. Fine, you don't want me here? I'll go back. The only problem is, is we're not God and we can't hold this place together. Right? But thankfully, God's holding a little boat together that was floating on it. I only wanted to find that's interesting. Maybe I'm too nerdy to find that. I just, I just, I love the illusion right here in Job. He's like, I'd lock it up. Well, guess what? When we told him get lost, he's like, okay, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> epic end to that day, right? All right. Anyway, that was a total nerd moment. Had nothing really to do with Job except that Job brought it up, and I, I'm preaching, so I got to choose. All right. Anyway, so then he keeps going on with questions that have nothing to do with the flood, but he does ask stuff like, uh, do you know the mysteries of the ocean or of death? Uh, do you understand everything on the planet? Uh, explain to me if you know, explain to me light and darkness, uh, where do they reside? Uh, you must know, because it, it God gets a little, I've got to be careful how I say this, because some people are like, I don't think God would do that. I don't think he's doing it against people the way we use it, but it's almost sarcastic. Like, well, you tell me, because I know you were born a really, 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 really long time ago and know all these things. God kind of in the poetry asks it that way. And he goes, can you explain to me where the snow and the hail are stored? How is light scattered? How does wind go across the earth? It's almost like a science class. He's just asking a question. He's like, okay, how do floods and thunderstorms work? Uh, Who causes it to rain where there's no human lives? Who created it? What about dew and ice? What about Pleiades and Orion? Now he does a NASA class. Like, well, how do you explain all of that? Uh, Who controls the animals? Do you understand the laws of the universe? Can you control the weather? How do you do that? How many of you are like, these are just a bunch of unfair questions, right? Because can you answer that? Even if you're a scientist, I don't think you specialize in all of that, right? And we're not even 100% sure all the time, right? That, that's the thing. And again, as I said, scholars say that God brings this stuff up to shut Job up because he doesn't have an answer. I'm going to preface it. I don't think that's what he's doing. This is what I think he's doing. He's trying to remind Job of the limits of his knowledge. Because before he can give answers, remember what Elihu said? And that's how we know this is what's going on, because Elihu prefaces it. He says, Elihu, you think, Elihu's like, Job, you and the friends, you guys think you know everything already. God's not going to answer someone. You're not really interested in his answers. You think you've already got the answer. And so God comes to Job, like, Job, just just a reminder, the thing that you're asking, the answers that you want, I need to preface it, my answer, by reminding you, you don't have all knowledge. You don't. There are things that are beyond your comprehension. And he prefaces that to say, all right, I'm warning you, these things are probably even still going to be fully beyond your comprehension, but I'm going to do my best to explain. It's kind of like, like his lead-in. He's like, listen, I know you don't know. I just want to remind you, these, these, are, these are complex things. I'm dealing with complex things here, Job. Just know that as I now try and explain some things. And then he shifts the narrative to another foundational truth about suffering. Now he starts to talk about suffering again, and he uses it with something that was the last thing I would have expected. He uses animals to make his point. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 39, and then we'll read for a while. This is chapter 38, for those of you who just came. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? 
or satisfy the appetite of the young lions, when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair, who prepares the raven its nourishment? And then don't miss this. When its young cry to who? God. And wander about without what? Food. It's a very interesting statement. When its young cry to God, and they wander about without food. Keeps going into 39. Do you know the time of the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the moths they fulfill, the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down. They bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong. They grow up in the open field. And then another interesting line. They leave and don't what? Don't return. Now, this is, this is fascinating to me for a number of reasons. All right, I know it's poetic, but don't miss this either. He basically goes... He asked, do you know how animals give birth and what they do with their young? And then he brings up two points that really only relate to the animals in this case. He goes, do you know what it's like for the animals to cry to God? Now, who's speaking? God. So you almost could just say it. When their young cry to me because they have no food. And then he goes on to say, oh, yeah, and what about the animals that give birth? And as, an, you know, as those babies grow up, they leave them, and the parents never see them again. It's almost it's very intimate language for animals. Like God's like, those, I hear those birds when they cry to me because they're starving to death. I feel the pain of the mama deer when her baby gets big enough and Bambi bounces off into the woods and she never sees it again. And what fascinates me about that is two things that God is doing here. The first thing he's doing is trying to remind Job of a foundational truth of suffering. Evil is not just a human problem. I don't know if you've thought about that. Evil and suffering is not just a human problem. God expands the view... He's starting to expand the view from the wider universe and that to tell Job, listen, Job, the entire creation is suffering. And I know you're thinking about your, your, you know, your feelings and your suffering, and I'm not discounting that, but he goes, guess what? I feel it when the birds are starving to death. They cry. I mean, you get this idea almost that tears are welling up in God's eyes, like they're crying to me because they're starving. The mama deer's just giving birth because that's what she does, but she never sees her baby again, and you get the idea that she's heard about that. I don't often, you don't, we don't often think about animals having lasting feelings for stuff other than our pets, obviously. Right? And I know my cat's sentient, so, I mean, it has, it has feelings. But my point is, animals have feelings. I'm not trying to be a PETA commercial. But I'm just saying the Bible, he makes the point. He's like, these things are starving. These things are losing things they care about. And he goes, I feel that. I have to worry about that, right? He goes, listen, the entire universe is suffering. Pain is the collective experience of the earth. In fact, to prove that point, actually, Paul in the New Testament picks up on what God says right here in Job. You thought Job was an isolated book. A lot of the New Testament picks up on Job imagery. And in fact, just to prove the point, keep your finger here. We're going to go to a passage in Romans, that famous book, Romans chapter 8. Turn there just for a minute. I want to show you something where Paul brings up the same thing God's starting to speak about with the animals and their pain and their suffering. And in Romans chapter 8, we'll pick it up in verse 19. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Actually, we'll pick it up in 18 because you'll notice that Paul starts to talk about suffering. And look how Paul starts this conversation about suffering. 
Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's like, listen, I know we suffer. And then he says something about suffering. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected to it in hope. What he's basically saying is nature didn't ask for what they're going through. Because you might remember in the Genesis story, the earth was made and then somebody was put on there as a ruler who, was put, who, who were put there to run the place. Mankind, Adam and Eve, right? Well, when they rebelled and they turned the planet over to evil, guess who got sucked into it like children in the middle of a custody battle? All the rest of the creation. They're not the ones that ate the fruit. They're not the ones that said, get lost, God. Adam and Eve did, but since God had given the planet to them to run, and when Satan comes in, he's like, trust me instead, right? And they hand the planet over to him. Guess who all got sucked into the rebellion? All the creatures. Cats, dogs, birds, deer, lions, everything. Plants, everything gets sucked in there. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, they don't like this reality. They didn't ask for it. They didn't choose it. They got sucked into it. And then verse 21 The creation itself also will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, and then he uses very interesting language, Job-like language, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, what? Groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, hold on to that word, because Paul's going to make a connection here with that one word. Creation is doing what? Groaning. Now watch this. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, what's the next word? Groan, there's that same word, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption together as sons, right? Now watch this. So, so far we've got two people groaning, two entities groaning. Creation, this idea of a guttural like, like you can't even express how bad it is. Nature's just groaning, like, make it stop. And then he goes, humans, which we get this part because we go through it, right? We're groaning. Ah, make it stop. Groaning, groaning. Now, this we usually miss because he moves on seemingly to something else, but jump down to verse 26 and watch what he does. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Some of you might have heard this verse because we talk about it, but don't miss what he does with it. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with what? Groans too deep for words. Now, we normally, if you've been around, you know, Christianity any number of time, you might have heard that verse because we talk about it like, don't worry when you pray and you don't know what to pray. The Spirit's going to pray for you and things you don't know. But in the context of the passage, he's not just making a statement about the Spirit, a member of the God family, helping you out with prayer. He's in the context of nature is groaning in pain. You are groaning in pain. And you get the idea that both nature and humans are crying out to God in pain. They're just groaning for it to stop. And then he says, know in that moment that the Spirit, God himself, is groaning with you. You ever thought about that? He connects all three. It's like the entire universe is just like, make it stop. Just groaning. God himself is groaning. You get the idea that he goes, Job, 
not only is pain wider than just humanity, not only is this a universal problem, but this is a problem intimate to me. I feel all of it. I don't just feel your pain. I don't just feel all human pain. I feel the birds when they die. I feel the deer, the twinge of pain in the deer when it never sees its child again. I feel the lion cub pain. I feel the pla- I feel all pain. Job, I know what you're going through because I'm going through it. You're begging for it to stop. How do you think I feel? I'm begging for it to stop. I am in pain. Everything I've made is in pain in the universe, and I'm groaning, and I want it to stop. What do you say to that when God tells that to you? Do you realize that God feels your pain? And some of you go, well, I mean, he's God. He may be in a a knowledge sense he feels your pain. Well, if you don't even believe that, if you choose to be like, I think you're exaggerating that amount of pain, what about Jesus when he became flesh? What about when he actually became human and then went through life like us? And I'm not even talking about the pain of the cross. I'm talking about he just lived life. And nothing about his life was pain-free. This is not like he was okay until he hit the cross, and then, you know, now we can make a Mel Gibson movie, and now we feel sorry for him at the end. Right? He hurt the entire existence that he had down here. For one, I mean, just one fact to prove that from science, and I'm going to butcher this term, but I was just reading, I think it's the American Journal of Medicine, this is last year. This is, I'm going to butcher this, but you can look it up on Google. This is, this is amazing. They were doing studies, and you might can guess when I tell you what this study is why somebody might want to commission this, but they were trying to actually do a study about what a fetus in the womb might feel or not feel or experience or whatever, and you can just take a guess who might want to, you know, why people would be interested in that, but they d- science discovered something not just on the fetuses, but when they were following these fetuses, trying to like judge metrics and stuff, and when the kid was born, because they'd follow it all the way to term, and when it was growing up in the first couple of years, they were doing brain scans and, and ultrasounds and stuff like that they could do. And they came up with a conclusion, because they were also scanning the mother's brain and you know her heart patterns and all this other stuff, and they discovered that science said the fetus in the womb can feel the feelings and emotions that the mom is going through. And that when that goes in there, it influences the psyche. That's their best guess because, you know, psychology can't fully prove that. There's, it's still experimental science. But they said their guess is that forms the first impressions of a child in life, whatever feelings the mother was going through. Well, if that's true, think about this for a moment. How does Jesus show up on the earth? Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was born. Okay, who was he born to? Mary. And what's the key part of the story that whether you're Christian or not, everyone knows? She was a what? The virgin birth. We all want to talk about that. And remember how the story, all four Gospels make this point. When she becomes pregnant, even though God has told her that he's the one doing it or whatever. I mean, have you ever thought about this, ladies? It's fine. We read the story and we're like, well, God told her so it should be okay. Remember, all four God. I mean, guys, if your girlfriend or your wife or somebody else, you know, if, they, if she came up to you and was like, hey, um, I've got some interesting news and some good news. Okay, what is it? Um, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it's God. 
I, I don't know about you, but you know the angel had to show up to Joseph because it would take God to convince me of that story. I mean, you know what you're talking about, right? No, 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 no. It wasn't Fred. It wasn't. No, it was God. Oh, right. It was God. <laughs> and you get that in the story because it says Joseph wanted to put her away privately. He was going to be nice about it. He wasn't going to publicly shame her or kill her, which he could have done. But he's just kind of like, okay, goodbye. He's going to do that until the angel shows up. Now, think about this, though. It took an angel to convince Joseph that this wasn't a phony story of her just sleeping around or doing something. When do you think everybody else thought about her for the nine months she's carrying him to term? Right? And I don't know. I don't know the story of people in here, but there's probably a high percentage that one of you ladies or somebody in here, right, you might have had a child outside of what most church people consider that's what you need to do. And I can only imagine what you have gone through as people. I mean, they don't even have to say anything, right? It's just the way they look at you, right? Or sly comments that are made or whatever. And here's the thing. Do you think Mary felt all of that? Do you think there was a moment, even though God had told her, uh, this is my plan and I'm, this is going to be the son of God. Or whatever, do you think there wasn't times where the thought crossed her mind, I wish I wasn't the one having to do this? I don't know if I wanted this child. Right? I mean, would not somebody wrestle with that? Here's the thing. Those feelings of, I don't know if I want you. Right? This idea, I, I don't know if I want this child. My life would have been better if I wasn't having this child. Uh, science is saying all those thoughts she would have had, Jesus would have felt. He would have come into the world having experienced the doubt of, I don't know if I really wanted you. My life would have been better if I wasn't having to go through this. I'm just not sure what I think about this. Can you imagine in the womb he was experiencing, I don't know if I want you. Yeah, I, you know, you made my life miserable. My, things would have been better if you God has known pain since the womb. Then he lives life, and he lives a life not just with all the suckage that we deal with in the world just as human beings, but then he deals with the fact that the devil knows he's down here, and he takes every opportunity he can to slug the guy to death while he's on his turf. It was not just a simple like, kumbaya, my Lord. You know, he wasn't just floating through life. Every single thing hit him. His own family didn't want him even when he was born. You can read in the Gospels accounts when even he got bigger, his stepbrothers and sisters are all picking on him all the time. They're making fun of him all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, if you're the son of God, why don't you show up in Jerusalem? I mean, the, any chance they get, they're picking on him. Right? This guy, God knew pain in Christ far before a cross. His whole experience was suffering. So if you don't think that he really intimately knows it there, at least accept that he knows it through the experience of being us. He went through it. He feels that pain constantly in ways that we would never understand. And if you think your pain is bad enough when you experience it, what if you were experiencing everyone's pain all at once all the time? I think groaning is an understatement in that case. And as the realization of that hits Job, Job makes, really, I mean, he does what we do. All right, go back to Job, chapter 40. Because now that God sets the stage for that, watch what Job does. God basically tells him, pain is more than just you. It's my experience. It's nature's experience. It's the universe's experience. And then Job kind of tries to cop out. 40, verse 3. Watch what Job says. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Basically, Job doesn't just realize the limits of his knowledge, but he goes overboard trying to excuse him, excuse that by saying, I'm insignificant, I'm worthless. And by the way, how many of us do that? Don't we do that? You find out you had something wrong, someone tells you the truth, you figure out the answer, and your first thing to try and excuse it or make you feel better or get them away or whatever is you criticize yourself and make yourself act like you're stupid, like you're the dumbest person that existed on the planet, or you're the only person in life that couldn't, you're like, yeah, I know, I was just too stupid to see it. Well, you know, if it had been anyone else, I guess I could have, you know, but I'm dumb. I mean, we, you make, we, we, we treat ourselves like trash. And what I love about this is how God responds to him saying that, and I don't want you to miss this. He says that, and look at verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Man up. Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Right? And basically what he's saying is this. He rebukes Job, tearing himself apart as if he's worthless. And this is what I love about this, because we might think we're worthless. We like to beat ourselves up. But look, even in this moment where Job recognizes that he wasn't really understanding things, and he's been criticizing, and he's not been ready for answers and all that, God still won't allow him to criticize himself. He's like, no, 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 no. I will not tolerate you sitting here saying you're garbage. You are not garbage. And I love this. God does not invalidate your experience. In fact, he gets really upset about it if you try and belittle yourself, because he doesn't view you as junk. You are not junk. You are not the dumbest thing that walked God's green earth. You're far from it. You are infinitely valuable to him, and he will not stand you trashing yourself. Humility, and I know the church does this, humility is not acting or treating yourself as if you're worthless. Sometimes that's what we think humility is, right? You do something in church, you do something in life, a church person comes up like, oh, great special music. Or, I mean, I've done this as a pastor. People come up, hopefully sometimes, and they're like, great sermon, pastor, right? You know, they do the thing. And what do all pastors and all that do? If we're going to be humble, we're going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. It was all, you know, it was I mean, don't we do that? Right? They're like, beautiful song. You're like, oh, oh glory to God. Right? I mean, we do that kind of thing. And, and it's nice to give glory to God, but what we're really doing is like, oh, no, I'm nothing. He, you know, and we think that's so holy. And according to Job, God would be like, what are you doing? There's a difference between, eh, this is like the reverse of like, I know I'm the best singer that God ever created. You know, I mean, you don't have to do that. But I don't know where we got the idea that you go the reverse form of pride, that you're the worst thing that ever existed, and it's just a miracle you managed to make a note. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. I'll say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? Don't miss that. God will not tolerate Job picking on himself and being like, I'm the dumbest thing that ever existed. God's like, grow up. Man up. I didn't come down here for you to go have a pity party like you're trash. You are not trash, Job. Let's actually talk. I love that. He rebukes him. And now finally, with that said, God having set the stage, he gives a key piece of the suffering equation. Here we go. Chapter 40, verse 15. Behold now, behemoth. Right? Some translations might use slightly different words. Basically, beast. In the Hebrew, basically, behold the beast, which I made as well as you. Who made him? Follow along here. Who made him? God. Okay, that's going to be a key note. He goes, I made him. Look at verse 16. Behold now, 
His strength is where? In his loins, in his hips. It basically means in the inside. And his power in the muscles of his belly. Basically, God starts talking about this creature. Like, randomly, he's like, hey, behold the beast, behold the behemoth. And Job's probably like, what? He's like, all right, all right, Job, man up. All right, here we go. Uh, behold this beast over here, right? Behold this beast. I made him. His strength is deep inside of him. And then look at verse 17. Now start picking up on allusions. If you're a Bible student, you might recognize some of these things because they come up later in the Bible. He bends his tail like a cedar, and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. What in the world has a tail got to do with anything? Again, I know this is poetic, but if anyone is already noticing something, there's another place in the Bible where it talks about a tail doing an action. If you don't get it yet, we'll come back to that later. If you still don't get it, watch this. 18, his bones are tubes of bronze. means it's really pretty and shiny. His limbs are like bars of iron. He's really strong. And then this key indicator is going to start cluing us in. Verse 19, he is the first of the ways of God. Basically, he goes, he was the first or one of the first things God ever made. He can't be talking about an ox. And in fact, this is direct imagery right out of Isaiah 14 for any of you Bible students. Some of you might realize, remember I said Satan, one of our three characters, that's not really his name, it's a title, it means adversary. We actually do get a name for this creature in Isaiah 14, which sounds very similar to this, and it's something like, you would know it in the Latin, which isn't really his name, and the Hebrew, this is a real nerd moment, not that you have to memorize this, but here, you'll sound really smart to somebody, the name of this creature is Hylil. Now, you probably don't know that name because most English translations don't put it in there. They translate it into the Latin, Lucifer. Okay, but if you want to be really nerdy in the Hebrew, it's Hylil. And we like Lucifer for some reason. Anyway, we chose Lucifer. And the name Lucifer, which is why they get this out of Hylil, Hylil literally means the shining one. And even more than that, not just the shining one, it basically means the, you know, the morning star. Now, some people, not to get totally off track here, I know there's some newer translations that elsewhere in Revelation will use similar language, and they'll say, you know, star of the morning, and people freak out and think the Bibles are corrupt, and they go, oh, they're trying to say that Jesus, who's the star of the morning, or, you know, is the same thing as Satan, and they're mixing them up, and you can't trust the Bible. No, no, that just means that people don't know what they're reading. Ugh. No, because he says it's the, it's the star of the morning, right, or, Right, and Jesus is the morning star. It's a play on words in Hebrew to make a point. If God is the morning star, right, you think the first light you would see, then Hylil, this is where we get the hint, is the star of the morning. He's the first thing to reflect the light of the star of the morning. Am I confusing you yet? Because the titles are very similar. Basically, what it's trying to say is this this creature was the first thing to reflect the light of God. The hint being, though we don't know for certain in the Hebrew, the hint is that this was either the first or one of the first things God ever made. Now think about that for a minute. One of the first things God ever made is the thing that's going to fight him. Can you imagine? One of the first things God ever made, which, by the way, this actually starts making a lot of sense. Have you ever thought about that? If you wanted to know something about me, and you could ask my mother or you could ask someone that's just met me this week, which one are you going to trust their opinion? My mom. Why are you going to trust my mom? Because she knows me better. She's been with me longer. Is it any wonder now, Bible students, when you read Revelation, that it says a third of the angels went with him? Because think about this. 
Hylial, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 tells us, right? He, this creature was close, close, close to God. He's hanging out with him all the time. You get the idea if he's one of the first things God ever made, then anything they got made afterwards, they'd meet Hyle- You know, they just knew Halil's existed and known God longer than us. So if someone walked up to you, say Halil, and like, hey, I know God says he's this, but he's actually blah, 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 blah. You might be like, what? Get out of heaven, right? You know, kind of thing. Like, what? Okay, that was a bad joke. But anyway, like, what? Okay, but you'd have to wonder, because if anyone's going to know who God is, wouldn't the guy, you know, the first thing he made know? I mean, he's been around him the longest. Seeing where that could go? Well, he must know what he's talking about. Halil's always been with him. He's always known it. You almost get the idea, and I don't want to stretch it, because the text doesn't actually say that, but I almost get the feeling out of that. It's almost as like if your best friend turned on you. Has anyone had that happen before? The one you've known like since childhood. You almost get the idea that God's like, yeah, the thing, like the one I've always known is like, that's the one that's fighting me. That's the one doing this. And then he goes on. He's the first of the ways of God. Look at verse 20. Surely the mountains bring him food. All the beasts of the field lay down there. Under the locust plant, he lies down in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he's not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? You almost get the idea poetically. He goes, yeah, the earth is his domain. This should be another hint. He basically has his way down there. And then look at the beginning of 41. Now we get the name. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? And then look at this language. Can you press down his what? His tongue with a cord. Basically, can you stop his tongue? What is a tongue used for? Primarily. I mean, I know you use it also to eat, but to speak. You get the idea. He's basically saying, hey, can you stop him from speaking? Verse 2, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his, here we go, another item dealing with speaking. Can you pierce his jaw with a hook? Can you stop his mouth from moving? All right. Verse 3, will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Is anyone noticing all this talk about words, mouth, words, mouth, jaw, tongue, everything dealing with words? Can you stop him? Are his words really soft? Right. Jump down to verse 8. Watch this. Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle, and he won't do it again. Basically, fighting him doesn't end well. Remember how it went when you tried. And the other thing that's nuanced about this is this is also kind of a view of due process. If Leviathan is guilty of evil, he's saying his actions will prove it. What were the actions you experienced with this creature? How did it go when you fought with him? Did that turn out well? No. Watch this. Verse 10, no one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You get the idea? He goes, listen, the whole earth is mine. This is God speaking. And that's a key point. He goes, the earth's mine. What do I owe him? Which is another fancy way of saying justice is not found in retribution, but making what was wrong right. Basically, God's like, what, am I supposed to beat him up? Like, what do I owe him? My earth. Like, do you just want me to pummel him? Like, is that going to solve anything? Like, what do I owe him? And then watch this. More wording that should sound familiar. Verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his beauty. 
Where have we heard about a creature that's very beautiful and very strong and very, very great? Right? Verse 13 again. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within the double mail? You get the idea. Who can see beneath the surface to what he's actually up to? Who can see that? Right? Verse 14. More language. Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. Not only more about words, but this is direct alliteration out of Daniel 7. That there's a beast power, a dragon with some teeth of iron. Chompy, 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 chompy. Okay. It's nerdy, but anyway. All right, you've got that. More references to to speaking again. Verse 15, his strong scales. Now, this is very interesting. His scales, what's his defense? His defense is his what? His pride. Shut up with a tight seal. You get the idea that his pride is the central motivating factor of his action. That's Ezekiel 28. That's Ezekiel 28. This creature, his pride got in the way. This isn't about logic anymore. He refuses to, know, you know, to acknowledge that he's right, and he's going to prove a point. He's like, pride is his strength. Verse 17, this is even deeper. They are joined, well, 16. One is so near to another that no air can come between it. They're joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. You get the idea that he says nothing is alive in his soul. It is so devoid of air, he's choked his heart out of existence, and one is incapable of reaching it. That's very interesting language. It's like, I'm try- you almost get this idea of pleading. I'm trying to reach it, but it's dead. You can't get in there. He's sealed it off. There's no oxygen. He's killed it. And then this verse, verse 19, out of his mouth go what? Burning torches, more about the mouth. Sparks of fire leap forth. Guess what? That's also used in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 16. The fiery darts of the devil. Going to hit you, right? That's why you have the shield of faith. Verse 21. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. All this talk about mouths. Oh, and the other thing, words go like a flame. By the way, do you know words burn, right? Anyone been hurt? You know, you ever heard those? You ever heard that stupid phrase as a kid? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I'd rather get hit with a stick. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I'd rather get hit with a stick because at least that heals. You take whatever somebody says and it just eats at you for years. Right? You, you can replay that over and over again. At least they can't hit me with a stick if I'm not near them. They can be the other side of the planet. If they said it, it's still in there. Right? Verse 24, his heart, if you didn't miss it the first time, his heart is as hard as a stone. Even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear because of crashing, they are bewildered. Again, the heart is stone and raises himself up. Pride is why his stone heart exists. His pride's killed it off. Can't feel anymore. 26, the sword that reaches him can't avail. The spear, the dart, the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. Basically, you can't defeat him with a sword. You can't defeat him with a weapon. Which, by the way, any creature whose main weapon is lies, you can't defeat him with a nuclear bomb. I mean, you ever thought about that? You could kill it, but you can't kill the lies. God's basically like, what do you want me to do? Go to war and slice and dice? His weapon wasn't swords. His weapon is what he said. And the moment I kill him like that, it's going to prove his point. 
You can't defeat him that way. Verse 32, watch this. Behind him, he makes a wake. This is very poetic. He makes a wake to shine. You get this idea of any of you who do water sports, like you're going and there's that big ripple behind the boat. He's like, he makes his way to shine, and one would think the deep to be gray-haired. Basically, he makes his way look like the right way, and everyone thinks it's a wise way. Because the gray-haired, the wise person. And then, if you still don't know who he's talking about, right, I love verse 33. Don't miss this. Nothing on earth is like him. Nothing made without fear. It's like he's going all this stuff. And then all of a sudden he pauses again. It's like, yeah, nothing on earth is like him. One who was made without fear. You almost get, I don't want to miss this because here's another thing we don't often think about. Who created Hylial? Lucifer. God, now don't miss this. God made that creature, but he gave him a very dangerous gift, free will. And his own choices made him Satan, the adversary. God did not make Satan. This is not the yin to the yang, okay? God was not like, huh, I'm going to make a beast with a leotard and a pitchfork. You know, it was not his goal. He made this creature, creature to hang out with and love and all that, and this thing turns on him, okay? But now watch this. He pauses and goes, man, he's saying all this stuff about his heart being dead. Like, why does God care about his heart being dead? And he's like, I, your breath can't even get in there. You can't reach it. You can't, you get all this thing. And then he goes, oh man, he was the most beautiful thing made on earth. There was nothing like him. You almost get this idea that God's heart has to pause as he's talking about this creature and go, such lost promise. I miss this thing. Oh man, there was such potential and promise and beauty. By the way, enter into the heart of God for a moment. You think you're worried what God thinks about you. God is crying over Lucifer. Even after all the devil has done, God's sitting there like, there was such promise. There was so much I wanted to do with him. Oh man, there there was nothing like him. He was one of a kind. He was the only one there was. And I don't have him anymore. I can't even speak to him anymore. His heart won't even hear me. It's cold, it's dead. He won't even hear my whispers. It's, it's, just, it's gone. You see the same thing in the Bible, King David. Anyone remember he had a son, a very beautiful son, Absalom. And the funny thing about that story is Absalom does almost the exact same thing as this creature. He sits around for a long time spreading lies about his dad. He decides he wants to take the throne. He stages a rebellion. His dad runs, all this other stuff. Finally, these armies meet. Finally, all these people get together. And Absalom, you might have heard of this story because he has this beautiful hair, you know, this wonderful stuff. He gets caught up in a tree, right? Basically, he had to pull his head off his... Anyways, that was supposed to be a joke, but if I finish that, that'll be kind of like a curse word. You know, the the animal that the King James refers to as a body part. He had to pull his head off his... Anyway, okay, somebody got that. If not, listen to the recording and sue me later. All right. Anyway, and when Joab and all the people find him, they kill him. And they're like, yay, rebellion's done. And they come running back to David, and they're like, hey, guess what? Absalom's dead. And what does David do? He weeps so badly that the general has to rebuke him. He's like, all your army feels really bad for fighting for you now. Maybe they chose the wrong side. (laughs) Right, kind of thing. You need to stop doing that. But David cried so bad for the one that had done so much damage and harm to him because he loved him. And here in Job, we see it's the same thing. Have you ever thought about that? That God will cry when Satan is destroyed. Not because the evil's going away, but because he never wanted to lose that creature to start with. He was the only one. He was the only one. And then he finishes it off by saying what? Verse 34. 
He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all of the what? King over all the sons of pride. Basically, anyone that's prideful, all the evil in the world, this thing's the king of it. Does anyone take, want to take a guess who he's talking about now? I've kind of already given it away, duh. But do you see it? A lot of scholars are like, ah, oh, this is just some animal. You know, God's talking about hippos and stuff. Like, there's no hippo like this. And by the way, before you think, wow, he's so brilliant, he figured it out, it's actually Satan. Uh, no, actually, I just cheated. Isaiah 27.1 uses the name Leviathan and says it's Satan. <laughs> I cheated. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> Leviathan's not just in joke. <laughs> right? And it makes sense because all Leviathan means is like sea snake. Genesis 3, serpent. Leviathan's a snake. Revelation is a dragon, serpenty creature. That's dragon of old, the old serpent and Satan. Right, this kind of thing. It's the same alliteration. It's just an older name for him. It's just what people called it like, you know, centuries ago. Same guy. Ta-da! Right? Here's Satan, the mighty Leviathan of the first two chapters, has been in work through everyone in the world, in the universe. And you never knew this, did you? Remember, we know the story ahead of time because we saw the first two chapters. Who's doing this to Job? Leviathan. Satan. And you thought God never gave him an answer. No, God shows up and now that he goes, hey, Job, the whole universe is dealing with this. I'm dealing with this now. Just know, you're, it, 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 I know it's still beyond you. Your, your, your understanding is limited, but I'm going to do my best. God meets us where he has and he goes, I need you to understand something about Leviathan. Basically, God's cluing him into the first two chapters. You need to know about Leviathan. He's doing this to you. He's king over all the sons of pride. He's destroyed the universe. He's destroying you. He's the problem. That's really the beginning of the message of God. Job, realize there's limits to your knowledge. There's a lot of complex things going wrong, just more than your situation. And you also need to know suffering isn't just about you. The whole creation's suffering. I'm suffering. I feel all of it. And third, Job, there's this, there's this, this creature that my heart aches for, Leviathan, he's the source of this war and is the ultimate source of this suffering and misery you're going through. And I couldn't just obliterate him. I couldn't just obliterate him. It wouldn't solve the problem. I couldn't just wipe him out with a nuke. I couldn't just stab him and zap him. That wouldn't solve anything. And I don't want you guys to miss this. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that all suffering is some sort of massive conspiracy. I mean, I know we live in a world where you hear that cliche said among Christians, the devil made me do it, okay? And it's often ridiculously used to justify human selfishness and human pride and human anger. and what. But here's the thing. As Christians, this is one of the unique things we can contribute to the debate of our world. It's not just human selfishness. A lot of religions get that. Buddhism gets that. Okay, but here's the thing the Bible says. It's not just humans that are doing this. There is a demonic presence in this world. When people do stuff to you that doesn't even make logical sense how they could possibly come up with that idea. When you look at things like the Holocaust, when you look at stuff that's just so intrinsically evil, it seems just beyond human comprehension. Now humans would come up with it. The Bible says that's not just humans talking. There is a demonic presence in this universe that is out to destroy everything, and it's Leviathan. It's not just humans. Humans work with him. 
All the sons of pride join with him to do stuff. But there is evil in this world that is beyond just humans or our ability to control. There is a creature out there out to destroy everything. Leviathan. Leviathan. Do you realize that? Does that change your perspective of reality? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, okay, you said God can't just obliterate him or evil, but is there anything God can do? Does God just show up and tell Job, just so you know, there's this creature going around and I can't do anything about it, so sorry. How does this end? Is Job left knowing the answer as to where the pain is coming from, but not how it ends? Is God just going to leave him hanging? Well, there's some good news and some bad news. Good news is he's not going to leave him hanging. He's not, God's not done. In fact, the, most power, the answer as to how it ends is coming up. Here's the bad news. You don't get that till tomorrow. <laughs> but for the sake of tonight, how many of you are willing to accept the fact I mean, it sounds bad, like, well, if I don't accept it, it doesn't exist. Well, sorry, actually, it's true. There, there's a creature out there that is causing God, the universe, the planet, the animals, everything, just nothing but pain and suffering. It's, he's one of the biggest causes of why you suffer, because people work with him. Yes, people do a lot of stuff to you, but guess what? They're inspired by another source. And yes, unfortunately, I have to apologize to you. There's a lot of people just like Eliphaz, if you remember those who have been here, that even in the church are doing Leviathan's bidding. They're hurting people. They're hurting you. They've hurt me. Maybe your family's hurt you. Maybe what's worse, your family hurt you and they claim to do it in the name of God. Did it save you? Doing it to help you. Because you know, we love you. Maybe the pastor hurt you. Maybe he threw you under the bus because of something because he's trying to keep some arrogant, you know, whatever happy and you were the casualty. Maybe your significant other hurt you. Maybe your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever. Maybe, maybe they've damaged you in a way that you just can't. It's just demonic. And you've wanted to ask, why? 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 God must be doing this to me. And the book has been hinting, but now we know another source. God said, Job, it's not me. In fact, I'm stuck in the middle with you the first thing I ever made, the thing I loved most, and it's turned on me, and it's damaging everything in the universe. I'm hurting, Job. You're hurting. I'm hurting. We're all hurting. The universe is filled with pain. That's what's going on, Job. This is why this sucks. You're caught in the middle of this. And God's speaking to Job's heart before he gives him the answers to how it ends by saying, I just want you to know it's not me. It's not me. I'm in this with you. It's not me. Someone here tonight that needs to, for the first time in their life, accept that it hasn't been God doing this to you. People in the name of God may have done it to you, but it was not God. God is not the source of evil. He is not the source of your suffering. 
And if you're worried that the reason why he doesn't seem to act is because he doesn't know what you're going through, he knows far beyond what you're going through and then some. He's in it with us. He didn't just suffer on the cross and go. He's still suffering now. He goes, Job, I feel every bit of it. I know how you feel. I feel it too. Is anyone willing to say, you know, God, I'm... Sorry, I didn't know you knew. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that you weren't just standing off in the corner somewhere watching me struggle through this, that you were, you felt it long before I did. You get it. Is, someone willing to, is there anyone willing to embrace that fact tonight and realize maybe for the first time that you realize God gets me. He gets this. He understands because he's going through it with me. So I'm willing to say tonight, you know what? I'm open, to the, I'm open to the answer that this evil isn't from God. It's from somewhere else. Someone willing to say, God, I know it's not you. I know it's not you. Now that you know that, you're ready for the solution. And we'll get to that tomorrow. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I know there's still questions because even if we know the source of pain, that still doesn't explain how is it going to stop. Our hearts find hope that maybe now we see that you do understand what we're going through. But that doesn't make it, that doesn't make it hurt any less. It still hurts. But at least we take comfort tonight in knowing that you know what we're going through. In a weird way that you hurt with us. We're sorry you hurt. And we're thankful that you're sorry that we're hurting. And we're thankful that the book of Job doesn't end just with the pain. Or just knowing where it came from. But tonight we're asking that you would just hold us close. Just let us cry it out. Just... Could you share in our pain for a little bit, Lord? Because it hurts. <laughs> Be with us, just please. Please hold us until we figure out how this ends. Please get us through this. Please help us with this pain. And we trust that you will help us because now we know that you know our pain. You've been here before. You're here now. And maybe, just maybe, we hold on to the hope that you know the way out. Open our heart to your pain as you've opened your heart to ours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.